It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Alan Paris once said, Simplicity does not precede complexity, but follows it. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map of everything we cover. That's on our website and in our weekly newsletter as well. Plus, check out our YouTube channel. We put out cool content for all age groups with new videos every week. Hello, Jonathan. Hey, Rick. Our question for today's podcast, preach the gospel. What does that mean? (laughs) Our theme text is found in Luke chapter 13, verse 23. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Okay, so preach the gospel. (laughs) What does that mean? We live in a time and place where we're blessed with freedom of speech, and that means we have freedom to preach. Like you said, preach what? The gospel of Christ, of course. Now, depending on your perspective, the good news of the gospel can mean a wide variety of things. When we present Jesus to someone, are we showing them the true gospel? Is physical abundance and blessing or escaping from a burning place of torment the point? Is having your sickness healed or experiencing powerful emotions of peace and safety the point? Jesus and his apostles showed us what the gospel was and is, and to be honest, it looks a lot different than many have portrayed it to be. So coming up in today's podcast, the world is such a mess with people also focused on their own lives and their own stuff. Would they even be able to hear the gospel at this point? Is each person in this confused and entertainment-driven world even responsible for hearing and accepting the gospel? In our second segment, we dig in to find out what the core foundations of the gospel message are and what they mean. What if the gospel was only for those who want it? Some Christians believe this and other Christians don't. Our third segment looks into this question. Is the gospel by invitation only? Or how about this? Do people who are oblivious to God and his ways even deserve the good news of the gospel? Segment four zeroes in on this question, and it's got a profound answer. So, bottom line, what is the message of the gospel? In our final segment, we nail it down with scriptural prophecy that brings an inspirational conclusion. And Jonathan, just before we do get started, we want to just give a a moment to say, At this time of year, we always want to just pause a little bit and be thankful for the freedom that we have. Uh, We have wonderful freedoms, freedom of speech in in the country in which we live. And, you know, with Independence Day coming up, it always reminds me to stop and and thank God for the opportunities to be able to freely preach the gospel as we get to do every week. Amen, Rick. So, Rick, let's take a critical look at the essence of the gospel as we have this time of unparalleled freedom— to share it with others. Okay, so we want to share it with others. Now, 
so Jonathan, as be, before we get started, you know, in, in just digging in, you told me you had something to, to put on the table. I really do, Rick. You know, we're talking about preach the gospel. Well, what is the old, old story? Hmm. You know, think, you know, we have a tagline. Think about the Bible like you never have before. Now, does that tagline conflict or change that old, old story? Or, or does it actually reveal it? And, you know, that's a really important question. I think all Christians know the hymn about, you know, tell me the old, old story. And, and you know, there's a lot to that story. So as we look to think about the Bible like we never have before, let's figure that out. So let's get to it. Why does the core meaning of the gospel have so many different interpretations? Well, let's just take a look at a few different uh, kind of contradictory sort of things. And Rick, the gospel is great news for all. Luke 2, 10 and 11. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So, sounds like that's good, good news. Yeah. For all. Well, yeah, well, or is it for all? I mean, okay, sounds good. But what about Luke thirteen twenty four? Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Okay, some will not be able to enter. That doesn't sound like good news for them. But wait a minute, listen to this, Rick. God loves and provides for all, Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Good news. Okay, that sounds good. That sounds nice. But what about this? Matthew twenty two fourteen. Go ahead and read that one. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, so you've got just a few chosen. So you're saying, yeah, okay, God doesn't want anybody to perish, but only few are chosen. Well, but wait, Rick. <laughs> Jesus' sacrifice satisfies all sins. I got you on this one. First John 2, <laughs> verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So you think how about that? Okay, okay. Well, how about that? All right, that sounds good. But what about this, Jonathan? Let's take a look at Matthew seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Okay, so wait now. You know, you're just like, okay, but it's for the whole world. But in Matthew 7, the gate's wide and broad that leads to destruction. And by the way, many enter through it. So, you know, it's great to have the, 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 the big perspective. But, you know, there's a lot of these other scriptures, Jonathan, that may give you, give you some, some, some grief on that. Well, I've got a big perspective here on this one, Rick. The earth is a big part of the good news of the gospel. Habakkuk 2, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It doesn't get bigger than that. Okay, that, that's good. <laughs> I got to admit, you are relentless. <laughs> but, but let's take a look at the other side of that as well. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, folks, there are obviously, when you read, you take scriptures and you read them, there are different perspectives on these things. Or the question is, or are there different perspectives? And you just got to see how to, how to harmonize it all. And the point of this is that we as Christians can take one tack on it or another tack on it and come to a different conclusion. And it's easy to see how different individuals, different groups come to different conclusions. Sure, that based, makes sense. Ba- yeah. I mean, you know, just based on our back and forth here. So what do we, what do we want to draw from just this quick example in terms of the true gospel perspective? Well, Rick, the true gospel is a broad message of salvation for all based upon several moving parts that can easily be misunderstood as contradictory. We need to see the whole picture. Okay, so part of today's conversation is to say, yes, the moving parts of the gospel message can be easily misunderstood. And in order to be able to figure out the gospel, we have to be able to step back far enough so we can see the big picture. Matthew 13, 10 and 11 kind of brings us to that point uh, or beginning uh, to that point of beginning to realize that. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not to be granted. So that scripture right there gives us a sense that Jesus says everybody's not going to get it. And now you can look at that as a sigh of relief, or you can say, oh, that's a bad news, because why wouldn't everybody you know, be able to get it? Well, you've got to stay tuned for all of that, because the gospel message is clear, it is concise, and it is a really big dose of good news, because that's what the word gospel means. So we've got a lot of moving parts here that we have to try to harmonize. So it seems like more questions than answers. At this point, it's hard to even determine what is good news. With all of the conflicting conclusions about whom the gospel helps, why not start at the beginning? We're podcasting live every Monday night from 8 to 9.30. You can talk to us direct through our chat at ChristianQuestions.com. We also welcome your comments or questions any day of the week. Just hit the Contact Us button. We're now out of the starting gate. Let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. Starting where the first human evidences of the gospel appear is the most sensible thing to do. By laying that foundation, we will begin to see how God's plan for the gospel was always in place right from the start. This thoroughly confirms why the gospel is the centerpiece of God's plan. So, Jonathan, before we get into this, each segment at the beginning, we just want to, again, because we are thankful for the freedom that we have, we want to just have what we're going to call a freedom moment. Uh, this quote is going to be from Benjamin Franklin. It's from the Constitutional Convention, eight, uh, 1787, from his original speech manuscript. God governs in the affairs of men, and if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice— Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. 
I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. Well, that's a pretty interesting uh, uh, perspective from Benjamin Franklin way back at the beginning of the freedoms that we have. We're also going to just take a quick soundbite on a little bit of, of, of religious freedom in America, because this is something that is often misunderstood and misrepresented. The First Amendment freedom of religion in the U.S. from history. Freedom of religion. The First Amendment of the Constitution contains some of the most fundamental freedoms of our country, including freedoms of speech, press, protest, assembly, and last but not least, religion. Religious liberty is a fundamental component of our society, and the separation between church and state is what made the founding of America so revolutionary. Many, if not most, colonists came to the New World seeking religious tolerance and the freedom to worship as they chose. By the time of the American Revolution, there were many denominations and churches in the colonies competing with one another. The founders believed the only way to prevent the new nation from being torn apart by religious factions was to sever ties between the state and churches. You know, and, and that basic principle of severing ties between the state and churches is such an important idea and concept that we have going for us here. Because that way, politics and religion are two completely separate entities. And we've seen what history uh, shows how bad that can be when they're joined. Yes, yeah, very, very much so. The history of Christianity is riddled with political mess in the name of Jesus Christ. And it is as inappropriate as it gets. But that's for a different day. Hey, Rick, you mentioned earlier, is each person in this confused world, really responsible for hearing and accepting the gospel? Okay. Is it down to the responsibility of each person? Because, you know, the world is confused, and how are they supposed to recognize it in such a confused state and all of that? What is their responsibility? I mean, why did Jesus come? Okay, that's to get to the gospel, obviously we want to start talking about Jesus, but we're going to do it in a very different kind of way. There are actually, Jonathan, three keys to his work, all found in the sentencing of the very first human sin. So we're going to go to Genesis to talk about Jesus. And before we do that, let's talk about the gospel's foundation, Rick. Oh, right. Good point. All of the solid foundations of the gospel are laid out here in Genesis, which is amazing. It, it's it, right. At the beginning. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I have this theory that I still haven't proven yet, but everything you need to know you can find basically in Genesis. Um, Ooh, I, I like that. I, I, I tell you, there is so much power in the book of Genesis uh, that gives us a sense of God's plan, and this is going to be just one of those big evidences. So we're going to go to the very beginning and just touch on these three keys of Jesus' work that are shown to us at the at the, in, in the incipience of the very first sin. The first point, Jesus would come to destroy the usurper, Satan, and thereby he begins the rescuing the world process. How do we know that? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So this is the curse given to Satan. And basically God is telling Satan... You are going to die. 
Yeah. When you bruise a serpent on the head, they die. Right. There's no doubt. So you've got this veiled prophecy given directly to Satan at the very beginning, showing you, surprise, the work of Jesus, or really not a surprise. Um, and so, so you know, you've got that, that promise. Now, let's go to John three seventeen. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but the world might be saved through him. So, you know, the idea of bruising the serpent on the head gives us a sense of the world being saved from the serpent from Satan's influence. John 3.17, and interestingly, John 3.17 is after John 3.16, which we'll get to in a minute. We're quoting them backwards for, on, on purpose here. But John 3.17 says it's not Jesus coming here to judge the world, but to save the world. But does that mean, Jonathan, he didn't do any judging? Well, Rick, he actually did judging because he judged Israel, didn't he? Yes, and they they lost because they didn't pay attention to the, the clarity of his message. Uh, Jonathan, we have a couple of just want to throw a comment in from Facebook about this subject of preach the gospel. What does it mean? Uh, one of the comments was, and I really like this. It's really simple. Gospel in a nutshell: Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus lives. And I think that really, I love it. <laughs> it really does capture the essence of what the gospel truly, truly is about. So here we get the first key to, to Jesus' work. He comes to destroy the usurper Satan, therefore rescuing the world from his, um, his influence. What is the second point? Death would reign over all humanity until Jesus opened the door to life. We find that in Genesis three seventeen to 19. Then to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God's promise, and this is a harsh promise, but it's a just one, is that you die. He said you were going to return to the elements from which you were taken. So that is the sentence on Adam and therefore the sentence on the rest of the world. Now we get to John 3.16, which is one of the verses that's probably the most quoted in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so it says that Jesus came to take the perishing away. Now, you can look at this verse, you can argue, well, there's a condition there. And yes, there is. You know, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. We'll get to that condition as we go through our conversation. But the point of the verse is that God sent Jesus to take the perishing away. And again, that was instituted in Genesis in the context of the very first sin that was to Adam. So, so we had uh, God addressing Satan to give us the first point of Jesus' work, God addressing Adam to give us the second point of Jesus' work. The third point of Jesus' work is what? Well, Adam's sin destroyed or ruined man's harmony with God, but Jesus rescued that ruined relationship. And how, how do we know that? Genesis three twenty one through 23. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, so now see, this is a wonderful act of mercy because he protected them. Okay, go ahead. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him from the Garden of Eden. Okay, so he sent him from the Garden of Eden. So we saw an act of mercy in their protection. And here in sending him from the Garden of Eden, we're seeing an act of justice. That's right. So you've got mercy and justice working together. God is mercifully putting justice in place is the sentence for their sin. So you look at this, and it's pretty obvious that, that, that it's pretty gloomy. God is protecting them, but they still have to suffer being put out of that wonderful, wonderful place that God custom-built. It's like having a custom-built home and then you know not living up to the obligations of the home and being thrown out. It's like yeah, you, you that's can't just yeah you can't be there anymore because you lost the privilege. Well, Jesus' work is reflected in Luke chapter nineteen verses nine and ten, and this is in the context of remember Zacchaeus, the little guy. Oh yes, yeah, he climbed the sycamore tree. Yeah, that's right. He's one of my favorites. You know, he <laughs> he, he wants to see Jesus. He's not a he, he's done some things that are a little bit uh, a little bit shaky, perhaps in his past. And Jesus, you know, basically says to him, "Look, I want to have dinner at your home." And Zacchaeus is so thrilled that he's able to see the master, and the master is even talking to him that he's like, "I'll forgive everything I've everything I've done. I'll, I'll, return, I'll restore fourfold." You know, I, I just want to be right in the sight of God. So, so Zacchaeus is just thrilled and, and, and turning to righteousness, righteousness in a very big way. And here's what Jesus says to him. Again, Luke 19, 9 and 10. Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. You know, that verse 10 is we always look at that and say, well, yeah, sure, he's talking about Zacchaeus, okay? But I think there's more to it than that. I think when it says the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, it's talking also about all that humanity lost through sin. And one of the things they lost was their garden home. That word, to save that which is lost, what does that mean? It means to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction. You know, when you think about it, when God threw them out of the Garden of Eden, did he just like burn the garden up? Oh, no. He, he actually protected it with an angel guarding it so it would not be ruined. Right. So somehow or other, the, the essence of the garden experience, the garden condition, we believe is preserved. So, That's right. So Jesus comes and he, he comes. It would have no use if man would not be able to go back to it. Jesus opened the door for mankind to be going back to it. And I think that's a wonderful picture of saving that which was lost, much more than with just Zacchaeus, which was a great example. But this is the bigger prophetic picture. So let's go a little further in Genesis. Okay, the gospel's foundations would be reinforced through a life of faithfulness. And of course, this is a story that we all know. We're jumping down to Genesis 22, verses 15 through 18. And this is right after Abraham is willing to offer his son. And God, of course, stays his hand because God never intended for him to kill his son. He intended for Abraham to show his faithfulness. And here's what God says to him. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed 
as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Rick, I love this picture of Abraham willing to sacrifice the promised seed, his son. And God is showing us this beautiful similar picture of he's willing to allow his son to leave in the, leave the heavenlies and to be sacrificed because he loves humanity so much. Yeah, you know, it, it does. It shows the character of God in a very, very big way. And especially in, in verse 17, it says, Indeed, I will greatly bless you. When a lot of the translations, it says, In blessing, I will bless you. And then it says, I will greatly multiply your seed. In multiplying, I will multiply your seed. And what the, the repetition is showing the greatness of the gift. And so God is pouring out his care for Abraham as a result of this. And he said, in your seed, in your lineage, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. God's promises again that through Abraham, all of humanity will be blessed. See, Jonathan, that is the gospel. Right there in Genesis, right at the beginning, the right. foundation of God's word. So in when first sin came in, the example of Jesus rescuing the world was shown by, by, by destroying Satan. Uh, it was opening the door to life from death was shown, and the restoring of the ruined relationship with God was shown. All in that first sin, and now here you have this incredible promise that shows the bigness of God's plan for all the nations of the earth to be blessed. So when we look at all of this, what, what, what do we get in terms of trying to establish the true gospel perspective? Well, the true gospel did not start with Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Is, is that right? <laughs> you know, th that's a startling statement, the true, because we always think of the gospel and we think of Jesus. But what we just talked about shows us that in Genesis, the gospel was already in place. The plan was already there. So, so, so start that again with that, with that revelation sort of in our heads. The true gospel did not start with Jesus. Rather, its construction began with God's plan, and it was built by the faithful actions of God-honoring men before Jesus came. So the gospel had its inception long before Jesus came. This is important because the gospel is very, very comprehensive in terms of God having it set up before anybody knew anything about anything else. So it's awe-inspiring to see the gospel through the eyes of God's plan unfolding 4,000 years before Jesus. So the gospel is seeded in ancient history. What role do true followers of Jesus play in its message? It's not Rick and Jonathan's style to talk about themselves, so I'm going to do it. Your Christian Questions random male voice guy. Let's play Did You Know? Both your hosts have full-time day jobs and put a ton of time into this podcast as volunteers. They're also both volunteer pastors in their church, and they're longtime husbands and dads. So safe to say they're pretty busy, but they love having weekly discussions with our listeners. So make sure to reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com with your questions or suggested topics. Now, let's take our discussion to the next level. Here is where we fast forward to Jesus' earthly ministry. What did that ministry produce? His apostles thought the kingdom would soon be established, and they were wrong. The purpose of his ministry was to call out the ones who would be called upon to preach, teach, 
and live his message. So, Jonathan, the first thing we need to understand here is that at the very beginning of the gospel as we know it through Jesus, the apostles didn't have the right understanding. They, you know, okay. They, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Yet. No, no. And, and they're saying, well, Lord, at this, will you establish your kingdom at this time? Or, you know, we're like, are we all going to rule right now? <laughs> and, you know, his answer was, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. You know, so it's, it's an interesting factor that the timing was always mysterious. Now, before we get to that, Jonathan, let's go back to our uh, Freedom Minute. This is from Alexander Hamilton, 1787, after the Constitutional Convention. For my own part, I sincerely esteem it, the Constitution, a system which, without the finger of God, never could have been suggested and agreed upon by such a diversity of interests. And I think it's an interesting perspective to see the the recognition of godliness as they try to set up something in terms of government that showed freedom uh, with responsibility and put religion where it belonged, and that is not in government. So let's go to the uh, back to the First Amendment, freedom of religion in the U.S. from history, and this is about the First Amendment in 1791. The First Amendment was ratified in 1791. Freedom of religion as outlined in the First Amendment is split into two parts. The Establishment Clause. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And the Free Exercise Clause, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Basically, this language guaranteed that the government would have no official religion, nor would it prevent anyone from practicing their own beliefs. So that's interesting. The government would have no official religion, but it would not prevent anyone from practicing their own beliefs. Freedom of religion. You know, there are, there are those now, Jonathan, and we won't get into this, but, you know, who talk about freedom from religion. And the only reason they have the ability and right to say that is because we have freedom of religion. <laughs> You're absolutely so right. So it's kind of an interesting, interesting little side note there. Hey, Rick, you asked a question earlier again, and a very important question. Is the gospel only for those who want it? Is it by invitation only? All right. So is the gospel by invitation only? So let's get back to the gospel's process. Now, in the last segment, we talked about Genesis and sort of introducing the gospel's foundation, okay? The foundation of having to destroy Satan, having to deal with death, and having to deal with the ruined relationship and through the promise of Abraham. But now it's the process. What is the gospel's process? For the gospel to be eternal good news, it must be systematically built. So how do you build something to last forever? Jesus is the centerpiece of the whole building process. We look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. So at the end of the last segment, we talked about this great promise to Abraham that says, In thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And in Galatians three sixteen, it says, By the way... That was talking about Jesus himself. So Yes, it was, wasn't it? There's no guesswork here. 
Okay. No, no. It, see, I, I think I was right earlier. Oh, on. okay. Is that where we're going with it this now? For all, it's good news. It's Jesus. Uh, okay. It's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. All I'm right. just saying. Okay. I know you're just saying, and, I, and I, I'm just agreeing. I think that I like your side way better than mine, and I think it has all the scriptures behind it. So, so let's build on that. Jesus is the seed that blesses all the families of the earth. A key gospel factor behind Jesus is discipleship. So this, maybe surprisingly, is by invitation only. So to get this straight, Rick, you're saying that the good news is not taken away from everyone else, even though discipleship is an individual calling. Yeah, the discipleship is not for everybody, but the gospel is. Is now, how the heck does that work? Well, give us a little bit more time so we can get there, but hang on because you've got to unfold this building process step by step to really get the, the, the magnitude of what this plan is. Let's go to John 6 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, now this is very, very exclusive. You can't come to me, Jesus says, unless God has drawn you. That's the condition. You can't come just because you decide to. That's not the, what, what it says. And there are several scriptures that tells us there are only a few that are accepted. Why? Why would there be only a few accepted? That's one of the big questions. And I think there are some pretty straightforward, clear scriptural answers. We're going to give one here. Galatians 3 verses 26 through 29. And we already did Galatians 3.16. Abraham is the seed. Okay, now this builds on that. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. But if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Okay, so there's a lot there, Jonathan. It talks about you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus. First of all, think about that. Sons of God, that's a pretty powerful thing. Oh, oh, that's huge. Being baptized into Christ, it says you've clothed yourself with Christ. And then it's saying it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. If you're in Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, and you are an heir, an inheritor, if you will, according to the promise. So... What was the promise that was inherited by the seed of Abraham? Well, Rick, to be an heir of this promise is to inherit what the seed of Abraham inherited, the privilege to bless, bless all the families of the earth. And that's what the promise said. So the called out ones inherit the privilege of the blessing. There's got to be somebody else to bless because that's what the original promise in Genesis said. You know, and incidentally, Jonathan, and we talked about this. I can't pinpoint the podcast, but it was it was a while ago. We at one point looked at all the different times the promise was given to Abraham and mm-hmm. all the different ways it was given, and it's really remarkable how many times God repeated it and then added to it and made it bigger and more clear and more understandable and actually more exciting. And this this is a big powerful thing. This is why it's an invitation only to draw those to be part of those who bless. So here's the thing. To, the gospel is at work today. Say The gospel that's at work today is the calling out of those who will be implementing the gospel for tomorrow. 
So there's two pieces of the gospel. The first piece at work today is the calling of those who will be working on making the gospel of tomorrow continue. Are you, now, people can say, well, Jonathan Rick say there's two different gospels. No, 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 no. It's two different parts of the same master plan of God. First Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So this calling out chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's possession— you know, you, it, it's giving responsibilities. It's, it's giving privilege and responsibilities to those who are called out to be uh, those who bless. And, and it's Jews and Gentiles alike. All are called to walk as Jesus did to prepare them for the great future work. It takes work and effort to be able to do the work that Jesus gives us. So, Rick, it's not just playing harps and sitting <laughs> on clouds. You mean there's a mission for faithful Christians beyond their salvation? You know, you got to think about this for a minute. You think about what spirit life must be like. And, and, and Jonathan, I'm going to give you a clue. I have no idea. Okay? <laughs> okay, I truly have no idea. But think about the idea of a God who is capable of creating the massiveness of all that he has created in the eons of time. You've got to think that there is always work and productivity going on, wherever that may be. When you're called to that heavenly calling, you're called to work and productivity. But here, we're actually shown where a lot of that work and productivity is going to be focused. Blessing all the families of the earth. Well, Rick, it's a very humbling task of walking, as Jesus did, um, it's one of the greatest privileges any human being can have. It is. It really, really is. It is an incredible privilege. And, and that just brings me to another Facebook comment about the gospel. It says, and I like this one, the gospel is good news to be preached with a happy heart cheerfully, not as a duty fearfully. <laughs> oh, I like it. <laughs> and, and, you know, so, and, and the idea really is simple. It is good news. For everybody. And sometimes we're afraid that, well, what are people going to say? What if they don't uh, agree or what if they don't like it? It's okay. But just, you know, gently, mercifully give the news where it's appropriate and then move on if they don't want to hear it. It's okay. Just put it out there. Matthew 5, verses 14, and then we're just going to go to verse 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light shine before men in such a way that you may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You know, people can look at a, a true Christian life, and they're going to look at it a lot of different ways. Some people are going to look at it and say, they're, they're a bunch of jerks. You know, look at all the things they don't do. Look at all the... What a waste of time. Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Others are going to look at it and say, wow, that is really some kind of dedication. That's a person that I can trust. Because I see such integrity in that individual that they are worthy of trust. So it doesn't matter what they're saying. Eventually, it all will come to glorify God. And I think that's the beauty of being the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, and it shouldn't be hidden. Let your light 
shine because like you said, it is one of the greatest privileges any human being has ever had. This task is also one of the greatest life-testing experiences than any human being can have. Uh, and, and, and again, so Jonathan, with great privilege comes great responsibility and great trial. Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that's a beautiful scripture. All things work together for good for those who are called according to God's purpose. You've got to love God. You've got to be called to that. Again, it's that invitation only. And yes, the gospel for today is by invitation only. It doesn't mean everybody else is left out. It's just not their turn yet. You know, when you got a bunch of little kids, they all have to take turns to do things, right? And That's right. Pick me. Pick me. Yeah. And, and one, of the <laughs> great, one of the great things that parents always have to say is, wait your turn. Wait your turn. Well, the gospel works like that as well. God has a turn for all of humanity. It's just not right now for everybody. And so back to the, the, the testing part of, of, of the, the, the gospel call and, and individuals who follow in the footsteps of Jesus, which is a sacrificial life. There's great testing, but there's also great protection. Romans 8, let's go down to verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who is the one who justifies? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So you got to love the way those verses started. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. If we are acting in a righteous, moral, scripturally sound way, our protection is there. Doesn't mean we're not going to get hurt. Doesn't mean we're not going to have trials. Doesn't mean we're not going to make mistakes. But God is with us. And it is Jesus who intercedes for us. And I don't know about you, but if there could be anybody anywhere to intercede for me, I pick him. Oh, big time. <laughs> so, you know, it is about an invitation for a specific few. So as we look at, at this, this gospel process um, and the building of the gospel, what's our true gospel perspective for this segment? Well, Rick, the true gospel is squarely built upon the shoulders of Jesus. Secondarily, it is built upon the faithfulness of his footstep followers. What a responsibility and privilege. So let's make no mistake about this. The true gospel is built upon the shoulders of Jesus. Even though the gospel message was out in Genesis. Before. It was all about Jesus and the work that he did thousands of years later. It was all built upon him. It was just prophetically showing you, here's what's coming, here's what's coming, here's what's coming. So Jesus came, and he did the work that he did, and he called out his followers to be blessers with him according to the promise of Abraham. So it's built upon the faithfulness of the true followers of Christ as well. And like you said, that, my friend, is quite a privilege. With this kind of responsibility before us, it really sinks in how deeply important our everyday faithfulness is. So Jesus' followers are in. Do all the unbelievers of the world really benefit from the gospel as well? Sometimes our questions and commentary can get complicated. That's part of having a thorough discussion. We'd love to hear your opinion. Contact us now at ChristianQuestions.com. Comment through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or our app. Just when you thought we may be figuring this out, let's get more complicated. 
This is perhaps the most vital question to explore as we uncover the expansiveness of the gospel message. Agreement in principle on the destiny of those who clearly follow Jesus is easy. What is challenging is grasping the biblical teachings that also give all unbelievers opportunity for life as well. So Jonathan, it's here that real that the rubber really meets the road on what is the gospel message and we want to be really clear and concise on that. And the question is there clarity for everyone else? Right. That is let's see it. Let's prove that the it's in there. Okay, before that let's do our quick freedom minute. Okay, because again, we are privileged to be able to talk about these things because of things that happened historically, and we want to say thank you for that. This is George Washington, the day of his swearing in as America's first president, April 30th, 1789. No people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which we have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. So that's a kind of a a, a neat thing when you look back and you see the God-honoring approach that they took. Now, were they perfect? No. But you see the principles of godliness that drove them and helped them to create something that at least gave equity a chance. Okay? Nobody's perfect. And nobody's going back and saying, well, you know, we should all be exactly like that. No. What we should do is we should learn from that and build on those principles of godliness and, 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 and biblical morality so that we can really see things in a bigger way. Let's go back to uh, the just talking about the separation of church and state from, again, from the First Amendment freedom of religion in the U.S., and this is from history. The phrase separation of church and state wasn't actually included in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. Thomas Jefferson used the phrase in an 1802 letter to the Danbury Baptist Association. Well, in 1971, the Supreme Court in Lemon v. Kurtzman created a three-pronged criteria to ensure government policies or acts do not violate religious freedoms. First, a policy cannot have a religious purpose. Second, it cannot end up promoting or favoring any set of religious beliefs. And third, it cannot overly involve the government with religion. You know, and, and that's comforting to me. It th- these things keep religion out of politics. Now, look, a lot of us you know want to mix the two, but it really is best left the two are separate entities because religion is about spirituality, it's about godliness, and politics is just an entirely different thing. And in an imperfect world, it doesn't work so well when you try to mix them together. And Rick, back to an earlier question you asked: Do people who are oblivious to God and His ways? even deserve the good news of the gospel? Okay, that's a really good question. And this is, like we said earlier, this is where you get down to it. This is where the rubber meets the road on what is the gospel. We've talked a lot about a lot of the pieces of the gospel. So let's now kind of sum up some of those pieces of the gospel. So Jonathan, as you do this, I'm going to keep stopping you. Go ahead. Uh, So this is the gospel process. Go. Okay, the historical foundation of sin and its treatment is in place. Okay, that's the first thing, is having that historical foundation. We found that in Genesis. Jesus paid the full price that makes the gospel a guaranteed reality. Okay, we see that in the coming of Jesus and in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. 
His followers are identified as faithful instruments of gospel reconciliation. So his followers become a part of this. And finally, now comes the opportunity of the gospel for the whole world. So you notice it's not a different gospel. It's just the development of the gospel. And each step you take, you go from Genesis to the promise in Abraham to Jesus to his followers. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it doesn't stop here. John 5 28 and 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who have done the good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. And Rick, this is where we need to have a conversation. Now, one mistranslated word can really change this focus. And we know the King James word is uh, damnation. Resur- of, res- so resurrection of ja- damnation, not dam- judgment. Yeah, of not, of not judgment. So that can really make God look like a monster and contradict his loving and merciful character. Yeah, it can. And as a matter of fact, when we look at the uh, Greek-English lexicon uh, in terms of understanding that word for judgment, what, what does the word actually mean? It means a separating, sundering, separation, a trial, Contest, selection, judgment. So it's a process, not a stamp. There's a Correct. big difference between the two. We've discussed this at great, in great detail in, in other podcasts in dealing with judgment and you know how God's judgment works. But that's an important process to understand that a resurrection of judgment is a resurrection not of final uh, um, destination, but a resurrection of first opportunity. Big difference between the two. This is the good news of the gospel. Now, Jonathan, we've talked about the fact that the gospel has different working parts. That's right. And throughout the rest of this segment, we're going to look at those two two very essential parts working together. There's going to be the role of the called out uh, faithful Christians. We're going to we're call out the role of the true church. And then there's going to be the benefit that the world gets from it. And in all of these following scriptures, we're going to go back and forth and back and forth between the role of the called out ones after they're faithful and the role or, or the benefit that that role produces. So let's start 2 Corinthians five eighteen and 19 with the role of the true church. Now, all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The min- he gave us a ministry. Remember, called to be uh, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, a people for God's own name. This is the ministry. It's the ministry of reconciliation. When you reconcile things, you pull things that are at odds. You help pull them together. That's the role of the true church. What's the benefit that the world gets? Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. You think about that. You think about that phrase. How many of us as Christians overlook that phrase when we read this scripture? Not counting their trespasses against them. How is that even possible? Because the ransom of Jesus paid the price, and the reconciliation process takes that paid price and says, okay, let's build on having your sins paid. Now you have to be accountable. So the role of the church, the true church, comes up again in this scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, or at the tail end of verse 19. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the word of reconciliation. So presenting the clarity of the gospel and its application to every human life, that's part of what 
the true church is supposed to do. We're supposed to live that now, but we're supposed to implement that later in accordance with the will of God through Christ to the benefit of the world. And what's the world's benefit? Well, Jesus' sacrifice touched all who were touched by Adam's sin. See, this is another one of those things that a lot of us just don't stop to think about. Listen carefully to Romans chapter 5, verse 15, when we talk about the benefit to the world, and, like, and you just described it. Jesus' sacrifice touches all who were touched by the sin of Adam. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So it's interesting because when you say the many died, who in the human, in all of human history was exempt from that? All died. Right. Right. No, No one was exempt. So when you say the many died, when it says that the free gift is given to the many, it's the same many. That's right. That's all. Right. So the benefit is because of Jesus. Jesus is the linchpin to this whole thing. So the role of the true church is, uh, in, in Romans 5, verses 17 and 18, is this, is this promise to them uh, to, to be called out in a different kind of way. So there's a little difference in, these next, in this next verse uh, from what we just saw, that, that, that blatant covering of everybody. Go ahead. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So again, it's saying if you saw the, the, the equality that, that Jesus brings to every human being, it says much more those who receive the calling will reign in life through one Jesus Christ. You know, when you think about the word reign, R-E-I-G-N, not the rain that falls from the sky, but reigning as a, a king and priest, that gives you a sense of, of, of responsibility, of, of being uh, uh, over others. That's what the role of the true church is. They will reign over the world because that's what Romans is describing to us. So the benefit that the world gets from this reign is this universal application to all of the human race, verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. Every single person who received condemnation receives justification. Now the key is, what do they do with it? What do they do with the justification? We're going to get to that in the next segment because it is a personal responsibility. But Jonathan, this is the gospel. This This is is good news. It is incredible news, and it's all over the scriptures, starting with the very first sin in Genesis all the way through the entire Bible. You have this perfect message of salvation and the gospel shown to us. Let's go to another scripture in Romans and the role of the true church. Romans 8 18 through 22, we're going to do 18 through 20 to begin, showing the role of the true church. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Okay, so let's pause there. There's a lot there. The sufferings of this present time, this is talking about true Christians. It says they're not worthy to be compared with the glory. And Jonathan, when you think about that, it's like, well, that's a no-brainer, right? Being with our Lord Jesus and our Heavenly Father uh, in heaven, whoa, uh, yeah. (laughs) Our suffering doesn't compare to the beauty of that. And and, and then the next verse, it says the creation, the rest of the world, was subjected to futility. Now think about that. They were subjected to futility. Not willing, it wasn't like, hey God, why don't you subject us to futility? See how badly we do. Uh, you know, no. you, you're born into sin. It's not by choice. We're there. We're stuck there, and we make our efforts, and the efforts are futile. And God did that. And you say, well, why would God do that? And the answer is, he did it in hope. You say, well, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Why subject to somebody, to somebody to futility when there's hope? And here's the answer. The benefit that the world receives from the glory that will be given to the true followers of Christ is in verses 21 and 22 of Romans 8. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. See, the scripture is clear. The gospel works for us and them. So their benefit is they will also be set free from the slavery to corruption and set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it talks about the fact that they're all suffering in pain and, 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 and difficulty up till this very moment. But that's and, and part of the hope. The, and this is the old, old story yeah. from the beginning of the Bible to the end. This is not a new revelation, Rick. This is the way it was designed from the start. You know, when you go back to Genesis and you see the promise to Satan of his destruction, and it says the seed of the woman, that's representing Jesus, will bruise your head, that is telling us that the being that brought sin to humanity is terminal. Now, it's taking a long time. There's a lot of reasons for that. That's not today's subject. But when you see that, that's the gospel. At the very beginning, at the very first sign of sin, that's the gospel in all of its glory. And it just needed to be revealed over time. So it's a clear-cut picture, and there's a role that those called-out ones today play for the resurrection time, which we'll get into the next segment, for those who benefit from them tomorrow. In thee and thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So what's our true gospel perspective for this segment? The true gospel is broad enough to reach and to grab hold of the entire human race. Okay. It is, we need to be clear that the gospel is so big that it has room for every human being who ever lived, no matter what their condition. You say, well, why? Why would you give them an opportunity? Because they were born in sin, born into death without a choice. Justice says if Jesus is going to cancel sin and death for Adam, he's therefore going to cancel sin and death for everyone else. Doesn't mean they have a free pass but it does mean they have an opportunity for freedom. Big difference. And again, we'll get to that in the next segment. Seeing the results of the open door to life that the gospel brings to all helps us to be focused and driven. We have seen the moving parts of the gospel in action. 
What does its actual fulfillment look like? Join our conversation by messaging us through the Christian Questions app. Download it now in your app store. Just search Christian Questions, then give us your thoughts on this and future episodes. Now, let's take a CQ deep dive. One of the most powerful points of this whole conversation is how the gospel, the good news, has always been with humanity, even if it began as subtle actions and prophecy. What we are witnessing is the ever-growing power that God's plan through the gospel is preparing to soon unleash upon us all. And, you know, Jonathan, I, you know, you think about that and, and, and you know, that almost sounds like, you know, you're, you're, you're doing a trailer for an, an action movie. The power is going to be unleashed. <laughs> and it's true. And the power is beyond anything. You know, you see the Avengers movies and all the superheroes. They're, they're a nothing compared to the power of resurrection. They're a nothing compared to the power of God's plan. They're nothing. They're just human imagination. But watch what happens when reality comes to town. So before we get to that now, let's just do our final Freedom Minute. Our last one was George Washington at his inauguration, so we thought it appropriate to go to George Washington, his farewell address in 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which led to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail to the exclusion of religious principle. And the interesting thing is, and don't want to get into this, <laughs> tempted to, but, you know, now we are trying to have, quote, morality, unquote, without religious principles. And you can see how badly it's going, how far off the rails we've gone in terms of basic human dignity and basic human reasoning in terms of, of, of having something higher than ourselves. Very, very dangerous place. Uh, and, and George Washington was saying, don't do that. And well, here we are 200 years later doing that. So anyway. <laughs> okay, uh, one last soundbite from history, the First Am Amendment, uh, freedom of religion in the U.S. And this is really about the practical application of the separation of church and state for today. So how does that translate into the real world? It's probably best exemplified in our public schools, where neither teachers nor students are allowed to lead a class in prayer because that would mean the school is promoting a particular religion above others. Educators can teach about religion in the context of history, but can't preach its tenets or beliefs. Religious extracurricular activities can take place, but they must be organized and run by students and be held during non-school hours. The Founding Fathers, based on the experience of their ancestors and their own beliefs, managed to forge a government whose freedoms are as important today as they were then. And freedom of religion continues to be one of the most important liberties that makes America, America. You know, and, and Jonathan, again, I, it's so important to, to recognize that freedom of religion is not freedom from religion. It, it is simply giving people the opportunity to worship in a way that they see fit with respect. And, you know, something, that's something that's getting lost these days. And it's unfortunate because we've been given such wonderful freedom uh, with these tenants already in place. And it is not about church and state. We, you know, there's nothing that is further from what this country was founded on than this, this union of church and state. Okay, Rick, let's get down to it. 
Okay. What is the absolute bottom line message of the gospel? Okay. The absolute bottom line message of the gospel. Let's go back to laying out the gospel process, and then we're going to look at the practical application of the absolute bottom line there. Go ahead. The world has been ransomed from the curse of Adam, and therefore, according to God's justice, will have an opportunity for life. This present world must first dissolve. Now, Rick. Yes. What is being dissolved here? Okay, you know, and and, and use that word very specifically because, you know, God is not saving the systems of the world. He is overrunning them. He is taking them over. He is going to bring them down. So as much as we appreciate whatever system or we dislike whatever system, it's all going to go by the wayside according to prophecy. The question you have to ask yourself is, well, you're going to have a void, aren't you? No. Well, maybe for a very short time. It's called Armageddon. You might have a void there. But wait to see what happens after. So let's take a look at a very powerful scripture that talks about the dissolving and the destruction. And you say, okay, you're talking about the gospel, good news, and now you're going to talk about destruction? Yep. Why? Because it's part, a necessary part of the process. Zephaniah 3, verses 8 and 9. We'll just read verse 8 for right now. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Okay, that sounds like uh, our our initial uh, back and forth there. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like I got you there, huh? (laughs) It does, doesn't it? (laughs) But just remember... Let's take a look at this and understand that this is symbolic language. And you say, well, yeah, right. That's an easy way. No, no, no. It's really easy to figure out this is symbolic language, and we'll prove it to you in just a second here, okay? But here, here's what it's talking about. Once the time of trouble and Armageddon are over, and look, those are big, that's big trouble. There's no, there's no getting away from it. And it happens because mankind's walking away from God over the ages is going to catch up with humanity, and when you are completely godless, you fall. That's really what it comes down to. The landscape is going to change dramatically at this point, and it's going to be removing the broken systems of imperfect human government and opening the door to true godly learning. How do we know this? How do we know this is symbolic language about the earth being devoured by the fire of his zeal? Because the very next verse. Go ahead, Jonathan. For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. It doesn't say they they were relocated. It says after this, I'm going to give the people purified lips. Now, how is that possible? Because the plan of God plans for the pulling out of these governments so that God can put in place something that actually will work, not only for a year or 10 years or 250 years, but for all of eternity. So what we're looking at is the core of the gospel message. All humanity has the opportunity for godliness because what is is taken away and replaced with what will be, and that is much bigger and much more powerful. The whole learning process begins with resurrection. Acts chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. 
But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be both a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So it's, you know, it's talking about certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And you say, you know, well, who's who? Well, the righteous, they're those who follow Christ. So, so, so who, who are the wicked then? Everyone else. Okay, everybody who dies in their sins without following Christ. Now remember, the vast, 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 vast majority of humanity wasn't called to follow Christ. That's right. So they're called the, quote, wicked. And you say, well, well, that's not very nice. God didn't help them. He's resurrecting them. So what are they being resurrected to? That's what we have to look at. See, this is the point we've talked about in the last segment, reconciliation. This is where it begins. Reconciliation for the entire world cannot begin until resurrection. That's when it truly starts. So now, when we get there, this, Jonathan, this is the big, this is the big kahuna when you talk about what is the gospel, okay? This is the biggest picture, the biggest application that we know for the gospel. Now the gospel begins to shine with the dramatic process of removing sin and infusing perfection. We're going to drop in a little bit, and there are tons of scriptures. We just chose a few. Isaiah chapter 35, uh, we're going to start with verses 5 through 7. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the Arabia. And scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. So, so Jonathan, when you, when you read those verses, what, what, what comes to your mind? the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, this sounds like life ab abounding around everyone. And what it's talking about is healing as well. It's talking about then, at that time, blindness. And, you know, that's both physical, human and, physical and spiritual blindness. Ears of the deaf, that's both physical and spiritual deafness, will be unstopped. Lame, not able to walk in righteousness, will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. Those who didn't know what good news was will be able to shout it for joy. The waters, truth, will break forth in the wilderness. So it's a, it's a physical and a spiritual picture. The scorched land becomes a, a pool, thirsty land, grass and rushes. It's, a, it's an environment of goodness. That's great. You've got healing. You've got an environment of goodness. But there's more to it. Along with the correction of all the physical maladies comes the correction of the sinful thoughts and the sinful actions pictured in the progress made by moving toward a destination. Hebrew, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Isaiah chapter 35 continues with some very specific details that show, in a nutshell, the reconciliation of humanity. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it'll be called the Highway of Holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. Now think about this, Jonathan. Remember earlier we talked about the broad road to destruction, and many are, are on it? Mm-hmm. And, and that's true, and Jesus was entirely right, and they died in their sins. Remember this resurrection, both the righteous and the wicked. 
That's right. Replacing the broad road to destruction is this roadway, this highway of holiness. It's a broad road to righteousness, and it will be for those to walk forward. And, you know, it says a fool will not wander on it. In other words, you're going to be educated as you go. Okay, there's going to be a growth process. Verse 9. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast go up on it. This will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And Rick, in these verses, I was thinking, you know, we're told in Scripture that the lions will eat straw and grass. And that being the case, these lions are not literal lions. They're symbolic. But but what do they mean? What are they talking about? Well, you know, you think about the Scripture in, in Peter that says uh, the devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And remember that part of the promise, part of the process of reconciliation is to take Satan's influence out of the picture, raise man to an opportunity for life where they can now actually apply themselves to righteousness, and here's an idea, and they can be successful. Because the environment is righteous, the environment is godly, they're given all of the tools, all of the knowledge, all of everything that they need. They still have to make the choice. This is not a free ride. You still have to make the choice, but the opportunity is clear, it's evident, and it's for anyone who decides they want it. So let's go to verse uh, verse 10, actually kind of sums that part up. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. You know, and one of the most beautiful verses... I think in Scripture is the beginning of that verse. And the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting. The ransomed of the Lord will return. They'll be raised. The ransomed, the, the, those who died in their sins, will be raised up to this joyful way. It's interesting that the world of mankind who died in their sins gets this highway of holiness to walk up. Remember for the called out church, it was a narrow way, a difficult way. They walked a different road because they walked it under harsh circumstances. The circumstances will be different. They will be open, and they're going to find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away because that's God's plan. This, my friends, this is the gospel, and it started in Genesis. So, Jonathan, our final true gospel perspective. Simply stated, the true gospel message is good news for all. It's foundational foundations, process, applications, and results of godly harmony are what we should be preaching. Okay, these are the things that we want to be able to talk about. And the beauty is you can start way back in Genesis and work your way through. And Rick, God's got this because he trusts his son Jesus to bring harmony once more. He does, you know, and and that's really the, the key to this whole thing. We said at the beginning, Jesus is the linchpin of the whole gospel message. Without Jesus, there is no gospel, there is no goodness, there is no life, because we're all doomed to death. So when we look at this, we can really see that through Jesus and his sacrifice, all the doors were opened up. But see, God knew ahead of time that would all happen. And God put in place the prophecies right at the beginning. And throughout all of human history to show us, no need to fear, I've got this under control. This is not an afterthought of God. This is a pre-thought, a pre-planning of God Almighty for all of humanity. And my friends, if you can't see the gospel in that, then you're not looking hard enough. 
because it's there, it's in Scripture. Just embrace it and say thank you for the incredible hope that we have. For Jonathan, Rick, and Christian Questions, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. Preach the gospel. You know now what it really means. Think about it. Folks, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please, rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about, does God really love humanity? Now, we kind of answered that today, but, you know, a whole different take on that. That'll be part two, a couple more parables to discuss. Talk to you next week.